So last Sunday was week two in this new series of messages on the subject of uh, seeking shalom. And uh, as I've shared with you over the last two weeks, shalom is a a biblical word, a Hebrew word specifically, that, that means so much more than people have often understood. For all practical purposes, it's, it's more than simply peace. I think perhaps the best English word uh, or concept that expresses the meaning of shalom is the concept of wellness. Wellness. Is your life in a state of wellness? That's the meaning that the word shalom really carries with it. Uh, so the, the way that the Hebrew people of the Bible conceptualize what we now refer to as wellness is what they would refer to as shalom. But it's not simply self-generated, this experience of shalom. It's not something that we can manufacture ourselves. As I've begun to explain to you over the last few weeks, shalom is a quality of life that comes from the blessing of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the grace of God, the Spirit of God. Timothy Keller, whom I've uh, quoted a few times now over these last couple of weeks, has a great definition of shalom, and I won't repeat it every week throughout the series, but just maybe one last time this morning, because I think it's so helpful in expanding our understanding of this word. He says, shalom experienced is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, with oneself, and with others. Now, uh, we began last Sunday specifically to talk about the first of those three relationships that Keller refers to in that definition. What does it mean? What does it look like? How does it work for our relationship with God to be put right or made right? And so I began last Sunday to talk about the concept of reconciliation and how it relates to peace with God. Peace with God comes through reconciliation, which is offered to us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So we looked at how people's relationship with God is broken through sin and selfishness, and then becomes reconciled through the gift of God's grace received by faith, which results in peace with God. Peace with God. So in that sense, peace with God is really, in some, in some ways, synonymous with salvation, right? It's descriptive of what happens when you give your life to God and express your faith in Christ Jesus and what he's done for you. You experience salvation and you experience at the same time a measure of what's called shalom, peace with God. This is achieved, again, as I shared last Sunday, by an expression of faith in Jesus Christ by which we welcome the the grace and peace of God to cover us and to fill us. Now, what does it take to maintain that? 
Let me ask you a question here this morning to kind of get the ball rolling, to get you thinking along the lines of this passage in Romans 8 that I want to study with you for the next few minutes. Is your experience of shalom with God static and unchanging? Or is it dynamic? Is it, are there ebbs and flows? Are there moments or days where, where you know that you experience more peace, relatively more peace, than at other times? Let me share with you an illustration, really a, an analogy that I think is a helpful way to consider this concept of shalom with God, peace with God. And it's the ebb and flow of the ocean tide. You know, sea level is fairly constant. I mean, obviously, you know, there's some debate among uh, ecological scholars as to whether sea level is declining or increasing and, you know, what that has to do, if anything, with the, the idea of global warming. I'm, I'm not going to get into all of that, you know, science about the environment, but sea level, generally speaking, is reasonably constant, right? It's not like the ocean's just going to turn up dry tomorrow. But if you're standing on the beach, experiencing sea level personally, it would seem to rise at times and, and then ebb at times. It ebbs and flows. It comes and goes, right? That's what we call the tide. The tide comes in. The water level goes up. The tide goes out. The water level goes down. So you could be standing in the same place, and in, in one moment, you know, you're, you could be up to your waist in water, and then a few hours later, you could be standing on dry ground. I submit to you that that's a picture, in some respects, of how we experience the reality of God's shalom. I don't believe that it's completely static, that, it, that it's always the same, and that we experience it the same from moment to moment or day to day. What I'm suggesting to you is that it's more dynamic than that. Our experience of shalom ebbs and flows, and there are certain factors that cause it to rise and be higher, and other factors that cause it to sink and go lower. And it's helpful for us, I think, instructive for us, to study what the Word of God says about this so that, to the extent possible, we can experience peace with God more consistently. So let's talk about what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 8. And I want to begin with what I would consider the key verse here, the focal point of this passage. There's so much here in Romans 8. I've actually taught on this passage numerous times over the years, but I want to pull something a little different out of it this morning. I'm not going to talk so much about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and what Paul has to say about that. I'm going to just presume for now that you understand that if you're a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ with you and in you. That's the that's the, the beginning point that Paul refers to in the second part of this passage. But what he says in the first part is really critical to our subject of seeking shalom. Look with me specifically at Romans 8, verse 6. Here's what Paul writes to us. The mind governed by the flesh is death. 
But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. Shalom. The mind governed by the Spirit is shalom. So how is this shalom with God meant to be experienced in an ongoing fashion? Paul's giving us a major clue here. The mind governed by the Spirit is shalom. Let me reframe that idea in my own words and give you this first point as a a takeaway here. Our ongoing experience of shalom with God is determined by how we submit our minds to being governed by the Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. Just another way to flip it around and look at it and think about it. Our ongoing experience of shalom with God is determined by how we submit our minds to being governed by the Spirit. Have you ever come to the realization that your mind in any particular moment is not being governed by the Spirit? Hello? Anybody? Can we be honest about this, right? This is what I mean when I say this is not, you know, shalom with God is not a static experience. And the key factor, Paul's telling us, the key factor to our experience of shalom is whether or not in any given moment our minds are being governed by the Spirit of God. That's an amazing insight. Sometimes, if we're honest, we actually find that we're resisting the government of God's Spirit over our minds. You see, we all have a mind of our own, don't we? And we like to believe that it's our own, and therefore we should have control over what we think and feel. And so it is, then, that our thoughts often lead us down a path of behavior that's self-focused, self-centered, self-driven, fundamentally self-ish. My friends, that's the very essence of sin. In fact, I think I've said probably numerous times over the years that in my mind, one of the best ways that you can spell sin is with a little S and a little N and a great big capital I in the middle. Because that captures the very essence of the problem, right? That we want to do what we want to do. We don't want anybody else to tell us what we should do. That's the essence of self-centeredness, selfishness, sinfulness. But what God is calling us into is a relationship with him whereby we allow our mind to be governed by the Holy Spirit. So, at first glance, that may sound unappealing. That may sound unattractive. You may be thinking, well, I don't really want that. That doesn't sound good to me. I want to be in control of my own mind. I don't want anyone even God himself, to tell me what I should think or do. That's resistance. That's rebellion. That's the essence of the problem, right? 
That's why your experience of shalom isn't always where it should be. So what Paul's saying here is that the mind that is most consistently governed by the Spirit will most consistently experience the life and the peace that the Spirit has to offer. The key word here is governed. And I, uh, I like this concept. I like it. I think it's, um, it's insightful because for me it connects us with another aspect of theology that can kind of be hard to get your head around. The kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard, you know, heard me talk about that before. You've read that phrase in Scripture and it seems a little elusive, a little hard to get your head around. What does it really mean? The kingdom of God. What is that? Another way to say it would be the reign and rule of God. God is reigning over heaven and earth. He is enthroned in the heavens. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But not everybody recognizes that. Not everybody relates to him in that way. What he's called us to as followers of Jesus is to submit our lives to his rule. That's living in the kingdom of God. Living under the kingdom of God. Recognizing that God is a higher authority than you. So what what Paul's talking about here in Romans 8, really, is a very practical way to understand the way that the kingdom of God is expressed and experienced in our lives. It happens by the Holy Spirit governing your thoughts, governing your mind. But you have to allow that. You have to willingly and voluntarily submit to that governance for it to work the way that God intends. Let me give you an illustration here as a point of comparison, right? Anybody ever been on a golf cart, right? How many of you hate the governor on on the golf cart because it forces you to slow down, right? Now, you still have a relative degree of freedom. You can still drive into a tree if you want to, or drive over a hill, or drive across the green. You can do all kinds of stupid things, and believe me, I've seen a few over the years. But what you can't do, unless you go down a hill, (laughs) is you can't go faster than about five miles an hour because there's a governor on the engine of the golf cart that limits its speed. Now, what's interesting about that is in that case, right, there's still some freedom to drive the cart as you see fit, but there's not absolute freedom. You can push the gas pedal as hard as you want, but that cart is not going to go any faster because of the governor that's been placed upon it. Now, what's, what I think is interesting to think about here is that that's not quite exactly how the Spirit of God works. God does not control how we think. He doesn't make us think what he wants us to think. There's freedom. So think of it like this, right? Another form of governor over your behavior, but a little different form, is a speed limit sign, right? You're driving your car down the road, maybe even to get here to church this morning. You pass a sign that says 35 miles an hour. That sign is meant to govern how fast you drive your car. But do you obey it? or not. Sometimes you do, 
And sometimes you don't, right? Sometimes you're in a hurry. Sometimes you're late. We won't get into all the reasons for those things. But sometimes we heed the governor, the speed limit sign, and other times we don't. The speed limit sign is the law of the land, which is set in place by those who govern the land. So that speed limit sign represents a form of government over your thoughts and over your actions. But you have to voluntarily choose whether you're going to submit to it or not. And the same is true, my friends, with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not force us to think the way that he wants us to. He helps us. He inspires us. He invites us. But he does not control us. It's not mind control that I'm talking about. It's guidance. It's leadership. The Spirit of God whispers to us in our thoughts and only rules over our minds to the extent that we willingly and voluntarily submit. Submit. That's a key word here. So if you look at the next verse in Romans 8, verse 7, Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But the implication there, of course, is that the opposite is true for the mind governed by the Spirit. The mind governed by the Spirit voluntarily submits to the Spirit. So this is, all, this is discipleship 101. This is what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus every day of your life because you are constantly facing thoughts that will lead you astray. How do you battle those? How do you keep yourself from doing what you shouldn't do? When temptation comes, how do you say no? The way to say no, what Paul's telling you here, the secret to life and peace, the secret to experiencing shalom more consistently is allowing your mind to be governed by the Holy Spirit. So this is about recognizing and submitting to a higher authority than yourself and your own mind, your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own desires. The self always wants to place itself on the throne of our lives. The fallen self wants to rule, wants to be in charge, wants to be in control, wants to decide for itself what it can and can't do. The sanctified self, the sacrificed self, recognizes and submits to the government of God. Now, Let's take this a little deeper here. How does the governing of our minds by the Holy Spirit actually work? What does the Holy Spirit do to exercise that government? How does he speak to us or guide us? Well, Paul doesn't describe this in full here in Romans 8. He does kind of hint at it a little bit. But to get at this next insight, I want to take you to a parallel passage that is connected with Romans 8 by theme but gives us a little different perspective, a little different insight into how this actually works. 
Here's what I want you to think about with me next. The Spirit of God consistently reminds us of all that Jesus did and said and convicts us whenever we begin to indulge our own self-centered desires. This is fundamental to the purpose of the Spirit of God in our lives, fundamental to what the Spirit is meant to do with us and for us. The Spirit consistently reminds us of what Jesus did and said and convicts us whenever there's a gap between what we're thinking and feeling and doing and what Jesus did and said. So let me, let me help explain how the governance of the Holy Spirit works in our minds by taking you to this, another scripture reference here that, that's found actually in the Gospel of John. And it's John chapter 14. Jesus here is explaining to his disciples what's going to happen after he goes to be with the Father. This is the night before um, he's betrayed and uh, goes to the cross on their behalf, on our behalf. John 14, he introduces the concept of the Holy Spirit, and then he talks about in explicit detail what the Holy Spirit is meant to do, what the disciples should expect from the Holy Spirit. So listen to this, John 14, 25 to 27. Jesus says, all of this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. That sounds like a pretty good deal, I think. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So think about, with me, the purpose of the Holy Spirit's work in your life as it's described here by Jesus in John 14. He's saying the Holy Spirit is intended to help you keep peace with God. Shalom. There's a connection here between verse 25, 26 and and verse 27, right? They're not disconnected. they're, They're completely interconnected. Our experience of peace comes from the Holy Spirit. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. How does that happen? It happens by the Holy Spirit, who is given to us, Jesus says, for this specific purpose. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So what's the function of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus? It's it's to teach us and remind us of what Jesus wanted us to know and do. So we could say, I think, in this sense, that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate peacemaker and peacekeeper. The Holy Spirit at work in our minds helps us maintain that level of peace or shalom with God that God's invited us into. But the key is recognizing and receiving the reminders that the Holy Spirit gives us. Romans 14, 17, I think, is 
helpful and, and related to this. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to keep you in that place of righteousness, to keep you in that place of peace, to keep you in that place of joy as consistently as possible. But you have the freedom to resist. By the way, do you know why the Holy Spirit's called the advocate? A great term for us to think about. An advocate is someone who publicly supports another person or cause. So, for example, you might say that by inviting Hannah to come and speak to us this morning and blessing her and praying for her, um, in one sense, I'm advocating for her ministry. It's a public expression of support for someone. In fact, if you use it as a verb, to advocate carries the everyday meaning of speaking out to help someone else. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you. Speaks out to help you. Speaks out on your behalf. Now, who does he speak to? Well, yes, he speaks to the Lord God, right? Specifically, hey, this is your beloved. This is, this is the one, you know, that you brought into the family. Favor, bless, you know, pour out your presence. I think the Spirit and the Lord are both interceding before the throne of God on our behalf. But I think the point here really is that the Holy Spirit is our advocate. In this sense, the Holy Spirit speaks to us what we need to hear so that we can maintain our peace with God. Let me give you another illustration that uh, a pastor named John Carter articulated. Um, I read a message on this theme that he had written, and I thought just came up with a really excellent illustration. It's an analogy again. Here's what he says. After our salvation, peace works as a guardian over the gate of our heart and mind. It's a kind of thermostat to measure the temperature of our spiritual passion. It's a compass to keep us on the path that God has designed for us. One of the fastest ways to know that you've missed it is the loss of peace. Our conscience is the mechanism that registers our level of God's peace in response to our thoughts and actions. When we act, speak, or think in ways that displease our Father, our manifested peace level retreats. A rising sense of dread or fear or inner anxiety begins to trouble us. The conscience registers this disturbance of our tranquility in order to warn us, much like those annoying warning lights and beepers on the display of your car. When something's too hot or too low or not functioning properly, a little computer deep in the car senses and reports this to the driver with lights and sounds designed to get your attention. The longer you drive, the more annoying it can become. Of course, the light on your display is not your enemy, The warning system is there to help you keep the vehicle going over the long haul. If you ignore the warning system long enough, the problem will usually cause something to malfunction 
and take the vehicle off the road permanently. So what he's saying is that the warning lights on your dashboard are, are kind of like the Holy Spirit in your mind. When that warning light goes off, you can choose to ignore it. You can choose to resist it. You can choose to just keep driving and pretend like everything's okay. But the warning light goes off for good reason. When something's wrong. Amen. All right. So, uh, just to give you another little example that's similar in nature, think about the rumble strips on the side of the highway. Anybody ever started to drift off while you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden you hear this, right? What's happening, right? You're, you're suddenly alerted. Oh, I started to drift. My eyes have closed. I'm, my car is, you know, finding its way off the road into the danger zone. That rumble strip is a form of governor. It's to remind you to stay on the straight path, to stay on the road and not veer off where there's danger. So as our advocate then, John is explaining that the Holy Spirit does something familiar, similar for us, though not quite as flashy or as attention-grabbing as a rumble strip or, or maybe um, you know, that annoying beeper that goes off when you forget to put your seatbelt on. Anybody ever hear that for more than 30 seconds? When we begin to drift off back into self-governance and doing what we want to do, the Holy Spirit begins to whisper, hey, 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 this is not the way of God. This is not the will of God. This is not what God has for you. Your peace level is declining. Pay attention. Pay attention. Warning, warning. Warning. And my friends, that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of that Holy Spirit is, is um, the awareness that comes from that reminder that you've gone off the tracks, that you've gone out of bounds, that, that there's danger lurking. Conviction is the awareness that comes to you from the Holy Spirit, that you are not presently in the will of God. And your peace is declining. So Romans 8 actually begins with a really powerful statement, just to draw a comparison and contrast here. Paul says at the very beginning of Romans 8, though we didn't read it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a really important difference to understand here between conviction and condemnation. You know what the difference is? Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation comes from the accuser. Conviction reminds you of who you are and whose you are and that the grace of God and the peace of God is still available to you. Condemnation and accusation are meant to convince you that you're a lousy screw-up. Seriously. Condemnation comes from the enemy, 
and it's always meant to tear you down. Condemnation continually points out what a failure you are and how badly you've messed up. Condemnation is showing you the problem but avoiding the solution. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, according to John 12, 47. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He came to save the world. And the way that people are saved and the way that people walk out their salvation is by responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So why won't you ever hear God telling you what a failure you are? Because Jesus said, I I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. I want to convict you of your sin. I don't want to condemn you for it. I want to convict you of it so that you can change, so that your mind can be governed by the Spirit and you can experience the fullness of life and peace again. So conviction is known in the Bible as as godly sorrow. God's Word tells us that godly sorrow is what leads us to repentance. Condemnation tells you, you are a failure. Look at what you did. Conviction says, come back to me and I will forgive you. Now, let me close with one last thought here. Our time is about up. I just want to give you one last thought to ponder here on the subject of the mind being governed by God's Spirit. Here's where all this goes, right? This is our part to play. We've talked a lot about what the Holy Spirit does in governing the mind, how that works, how the Spirit reminds us of what Jesus wants for us and convicts us when we're doing the wrong thing or thinking the wrong thing. What are we to do then in response to the conviction of the Spirit so that our peace with God can be renewed? We're to confess and repent. Here it comes to this. As we respond to the Spirit's conviction of sin with confession and repentance, our shalom with God is renewed. It's renewed. As we respond to the Spirit's conviction of sin with confession and repentance, our shalom with God is renewed. Rest and peace are restored when we receive the conviction of the Spirit and respond to it with confession and repentance. Let me just give you an example of this from Scripture that I think is a really beautiful and and insightful illustration of what what I'm describing to you. It's found in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. It's an example from the life of David. David was a great and godly leader, a man after God's own heart, we're told. Lots of great things to admire about David. He was a a worship leader. He was a a warrior. He was, you know, perhaps the greatest king beneath Jesus, of course, in the history of Israel. But he was flawed, too. He wasn't perfect. He made some pretty serious mistakes. And here's what he said after one of those mistakes. Listen to this, Psalm 32, 1 to 5. Blessed is the one 
whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Have you ever felt that way? David is not describing an experience of shalom here. To the contrary, he's, ex- he's describing an experience where shalom has, has, seems to have vanished. It's gone. Like, where did it go? Right? What is wrong? The hand of God is heavy upon me. My strength is sapped as in the heat of summer. My bones are wasting away through my groaning. That's a statement of misery. But then, David came to the realization of what was happening. It was the conviction of God that was heavy upon him. It was the recognition that something needed to change. And so he acknowledged his sin. He did not cover up his iniquity. He said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And guess what? That experience of shalom with God was renewed. It came back again. So this is David's description of the lack of shalom with God that results when we wander off the path of righteousness and get into the weeds. And this can happen in all sorts of different ways, right? Even to the best of us. Even to those that have been walking with the Lord for decades. I'll be the first one to admit, I have my moments where, where you know, I can get frustrated and lose my temper. I can say things or do things that are self-centered. Hopefully, in that moment, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon me, I will recognize and be convicted and not continue down that path. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 puts it this way. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. I want to... I want to just, as we close this morning, I want to frame this for you in a way that I I hope will be memorable and that I hope will remind you, that the Holy Spirit will use to remind you of how important this process is. Receiving conviction, confessing and repenting in response to that conviction, and then being renewed in your sense of shalom with God. Honestly, the best analogy I can think of is that this is really like spiritual breathing. 
breathing, right? Just think about this for a minute. Every moment, what sustains your life is breath. Now, there are other things too. That's not the only one. But if you were to stop breathing, you got a few minutes. And if somebody doesn't come along and perform CPR, you're going to die. Breathing is part of the very essence of life, right? And every breath you take is in with the good, out with the bad. In with the good, out with the bad. Every breath you take, you inhale oxygen and you exhale carbon dioxide, right? In with the good, out with the bad. Every moment of life consists of that one basic action. And my friends, that is like life and peace in the Spirit. In with the good, the grace and peace of God, out with the bad, confession and repentance. In with the good, the grace and peace of God, out with the bad, confession and repentance. I think it's remarkable, actually, if you've ever noticed this, that Paul begins every single one of his letters with the same greeting. You know what it is? Anybody remember? Every single letter from Paul begins with the same greeting, the same words. Grace and peace to you through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think Paul would bother to say that if you didn't need it? We all need grace and peace. And the only way we experience them is by continually submitting our minds to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.